If you've got your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me this morning to Second Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel 7. Last week we talked about the problem, and one of the the chief problem we said that we have is people, is that we love ourselves more than we love God. So this morning we're going to move to the promise, and we're going to look at it from Second Samuel 7. Marion also read from Isaiah chapter 9, and I'm sure you heard notes of the promise that are there. They're all over Scripture and the Old Testament, and so this morning we're we're going to come at it from this passage. So we're just going to read um, verses 8 through 16. We'll be talking about uh, some of the other parts of the chapter as we work our way through it. But Second Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. Let's read God's word together. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you, Ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Let's pray. Father, we would pause right now. We would come before you. And Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you didn't leave us to our own wisdom, to our own devices, but you gave to us your very mind and you communicated to us in ways that were meaningful for us. And so, Father, in this passage we read from long ago about how you would come and how you would establish for David a house, an eternal house in which your name would be proclaimed forever. Father, thank you. Thank you for the promises of your word. Thank you for the promises that this morning we will yet encounter. And we give you praise for them. We pray that they would uphold our hearts. That they would be steadfast before us as we hold fast to them in the course of time. 
We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in the world in which you and I live and move, there are right ways to do things and there are wrong ways to do things. In the Air Force, uh, they have a protocol school. And they actually take officers and they send them to these to this protocol school, which is at Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery. And when you go to the protocol school, you learn how to do it the right way and you learn what is the wrong way. So that when general officers come and they visit your base and when there are meals and dinners and when there are gatherings and when there are change of command ceremonies and when there are all of these functions, you know the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it. Now, you know, you and I, we live in this community and the very communities we live in, there are the right ways and wrong ways that you go about doing things. When someone invites you over and they invited you for a dinner, what's the right way? The right way is you typically take a small gift to them, right? It's just the right way. It's just kind of what you do. You show up empty-handed and, mm, that's the wrong way, in case you didn't know it, okay? So all those little holiday parties you go to and things, it's generally the right way to bring a gift. There's just right ways of doing things, and then there's the wrong way. You know, in this passage, we, we didn't start out at the beginning, but if you'll, if you'll take your Bibles, you'll look with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. You're going to see a little pattern. You're going to get a little commentary. Here's the commentary. After the king, that's David, was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, David said to Nathan the prophet. So, there's the scene. David and Nathan are seated. They're together. You know, you can imagine them, you know, they've got a cup of coffee or, or whatever. They're, they're, they're relaxed. Why? Because they, they are settled in the palace, and they have rest from their enemies. So, life is good at this very moment. And so there they are. And so David says to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Now, David is identifying a situation. And the situation is, why is it, how is it, that I could live in a house of cedar, this palace that I am dwelling in, and you and I, Nathan... Enjoying all of the lavish, you know, accoutrements that come with this living in the palace. And yet, the ark of the Lord, the presence of God with us, remains in a tent. There's a right way, and there's a wrong way. And David is identifying the right way and the wrong way right here. And what is the right way? Well, David asked the question, he says, uh, he says, how is it? Here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Uh, verse 3, Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it. He knew what David was thinking. And what was David thinking? This isn't right. The right way is that God would have a dwelling place too. The right way is that the Ark of the Covenant would have its house, that God would have a place in which He dwells. And so, that's exactly what he's proposing. David is saying, it's not right that I should have my place and God not have His place. And so I will build His place. Listen, (coughs) in every religion, everywhere, 
typically the way that this would work is the people would build the dwelling place of God, they would get it all situated, and then they would sit and wait for God to bless them. What you're going to see in this passage is David has the right way and the wrong way. He knows that God should have a place to dwell. And so he sets that forth. This is the right way. Things need to happen. I want you to notice, if you'll look in verse 4, that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to one of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Why have you not built a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from the following. You you see all of this. And in the end, what what God says to David is this. Your way, your understanding of what is going to happen in this relationship is not my way. It's sort of cliche-ish. It's scriptural, right? His ways are not our ways. But what an amazing statement, because what God comes to David and says is, he says, I know you want to build me a house. I know you want to build a house of cedar for me, a place where I would dwell. But have I ever asked you for that? No. Instead, he turns the tables and he looks at David and this is what he says. This is the nature of the promise. You're not going to build a house for me. Not you. Down the road, yes. But not you, not now. Instead, I will build a house for you. That's different from every other religion, isn't it? Every other religion says, let's go build a house. When you go all the way back and you look at the book of Genesis, and you look at the, at the building of the Tower of Babel, as they were coming together, what they were doing was they were attempting to construct a place in which they could go up and meet God, where they could establish this relationship with God. And what does he say? No. He, he throws them into confusion. He puts the whole, he puts the whole thing, he puts a, a kibosh on it. He says, that is not the way this relationship is going to happen. Instead, I will come down to you. So we have a right way and a wrong way. He has a right way and a, wrong, and a wrong way as well. And the wrong way was for David to rush out and construct this, this facility where God would come and meet with him and provide blessing to him. Instead, God turns it on its head and he says this, I will be a blessing to you. I will establish your house and I will establish it forever. And you will be a blessing to the nations. It's quite remarkable, the nature of this promise. I want you to look with me at three aspects of it. Here's the first. The promise is hopeful. The promise is hopeful, and we see it in verses 10 and 11. In verses 10 and 11, God tells David, and he's telling the people, listen, 
I am going to give you rest. I'm going to provide a place for you, a place for your people where they would, they would be able to go and be established. And then I am going to provide for them a place where they will no longer be disturbed, where wicked people will no longer oppress them. Let me ask you, what are you hoping for today? What is the longing of your heart today? What is it that you would love to see more than anything else in the world, in your life, whatever? I would venture a guess that more often than not, it is a cessation of hostilities, isn't it? Perhaps it's relational hostilities. Perhaps it's you're looking around the world, you've been watching a lot of news lately, and you want to see an end to all of these hostilities in the world. But lots of times, a desire of our hearts where we really pressed would be, I want things to be right. Children, grandchildren, relationships, friendships, marriages, a cessation of hostilities. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Listen, that's what God was promising right here in this, in this promise was, one day I will give you rest. I will give you rest from all of the hostilities that are around you. Right now, as we read in, in verse 1, they've been tamped down. Things are, things are good at this moment. But we know they won't stay that way. The nations were angry around them, plotting against them. And that, and that would all come back up again and get stirred up. And so the hopeful note in this promise is that one day, there will be a complete cessation of hostilities. And as the people of God, they will have a place in which they can dwell. For how long? Forever. That's how the promise here in Second Samuel 7 is hopeful. The second part of the promise is, it is a steadfast promise. Look at verses 12 to 16. There's three ways in this passage in which the promise is going to remain steadfast. First, steadfast over death. Second, steadfast in the face of sin. Third, steadfast in the face of the passage of time. Those are the three ways. In verse 12, he says this, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, what? I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. He's not talking about sleeping in verse 12. He's talking about dying. And he says to David, listen, a day is coming when you will die. You will rest with your ancestors. And even after you've died, I will be at work. When you go and they place you in the grave, guess what? The promise isn't going there with you because it's my promise. I am initiating the promise. Listen, that is a beautiful part of our salvation, is it not? That your salvation does not rest with you. Its success or failure is not in your hands. It's in his hands. He is the guarantor of your salvation, not you. And so he says, when you die... Don't worry, I'm going to raise up 
one from behind you who will succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and he will, and I will establish his kingdom. You read through, you read through this passage, and one of the things you're going to notice is over and over and over and over, who is it that is, who is it that is establishing all of this? It's God. He establishes our salvation. Every jot and tittle of it. Verse 13. He says, he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, listen, there are parts of this. There are phases, if you will, of this. There's the immediate phase. Solomon will follow and and God will raise him up and God will use him and God will establish him. But it isn't Solomon's throne that will be established forever. It's one who is yet to come much further in the future whose throne will be established forever. The son of David. Emmanuel, God with us. So there's phases. So you're hearing notes. And some of the notes that you hear as you as you read through the passage, some of those notes are immediate notes. They're things that are going to happen in the near future. But some of those notes are notes that are far off notes and they will happen much further down the line. Let's look at the next one. Because the next one is clearly one of those more immediate notes. And that is... Not even sin, not even the sin of David, nor the sin of Solomon, nor the sin of other leaders and kings who would follow. Sin will not break this promise. Verse 14, I will be his father, he will be my son when he does wrong. Okay, that's a good indication. We know Jesus doesn't do wrong. Jesus doesn't sin. So we're clearly looking at more immediate phase right here. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod by wicked men with floggings inflicted by human hands. Verse 15, but my love will be never taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. What is God saying? He's saying, listen, not even your sin is going to mess up nor thwart my promise. In you, your life and my life, aren't you can be assured and you can give thanks that you can't ruin it. We try. You know, it was Martin Luther who would, who would go into the confessional and he would say, I would go into the confessional and I would be confessing my sin. And while I was confessing my sin, this long laundry list of sins, I would realize while I was still in the booth, I was, I was sinning in the booth. And I would start confessing sins that I committed while I was still in the confessional. I don't know if you feel like that sometimes, but I do. And what he's saying here is that the promise of salvation, the promise that I'm laying down before you, that I will establish you as a people, you cannot thwart. Not your sin, not your son's sin, no sins to come. Here's the third. The third part is the passage of time. Verse 16, you, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. You and I make promises, we forget about them. Time goes on and goes by, and the next thing you know, that promise is, is, is not even a memory anymore because we can't recall it. But God says the passage of time will not damage the promise that I've made to you. 
So the first is the promise is hopeful. The second is the, the promise is steadfast. Here's the third. The third part is the promise is powerful. He says, I will establish my kingdom from your family and I will make your name great. When he says that, it's an echo of the promise that he gave to Abraham when he said to Abraham, I will make you, you a blessing to the nations. Instead of, instead of the people around him being larger than life, instead of the people around Abraham and, and, and his people um, being bigger and badder and, and more powerful on the block than Abraham, God says, I'm going to turn the tables and I will make you a blessing to the nations. They will know about you because of who I am. Quite remarkable. And isn't that what we read in the New Testament? Isn't that what Jesus challenges us with when he comes and he says to us, you are the what? Light of men. And then he says, you are salt and you are light. Go out into the world. Go and be a preservative in society. Be great amongst the men and women of this world. He's established his people in greatness and in power because of who he is and what he wants to accomplish. That's the nature of the promise that's given to David in this passage and to the people of Israel. And again, it's a promise that has a partial fulfillment in the Old Testament, and we see some of those fulfillments happen later, but it, it is a promise that really comes into its own in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is where this promise begins to take its shape and begins to take its form, and we begin to see its fulfilling right there in Jesus. And yet, even in Jesus, guess what? Even though Jesus has come, even though he has established his kingdom, even though that throne has been established and it will, and it is an eternal throne, the promise yet remains. You and I are still here. He has not fully come for us yet as his own. And so the promise yet remains. And then you and I this morning, as we come to the supper that's before us, I want you to think about the promise that we just looked at. And I want you to tie it. Let's tie it in quickly with the supper that's before us. First, the promise in the supper is hopeful. Why? Paul says in the Lord's Supper, when we take it, we do something. What is it that we do? He says, when you take the Lord's Supper, you proclaim him and his death until he comes, what? Again. You hear the note of hope? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. That's the note of hope, right? That's the note of hope. He is coming again for his people. For those who are his own, he is coming. And so when we come to the supper, what we do in the supper is we proclaim his death And that's why we continue to do it. That's why it's perpetual. It's ongoing. The supper will only end when Jesus finally returns for his own. 
And so in the supper, there's a note of hope. And the note of hope is we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again for us. How beautiful is that? When I was a kid, we were just home for Thanksgiving. We were home for Thanksgiving, and I told the kids I wanted to look at pictures, and so I went upstairs, and years ago, my mom took all the pictures out of those bad photo albums with the sticky paper, and she put them in boxes. And so I went upstairs, and I drugged down a bunch of boxes, and we just started going through pictures. And there's a picture that I wanted to find, because it's a, it's a very prominent memory for me. On the, on the drive down there, we listened to John Denver. All right? I tortured my children. <laughs> We left here, and, and they had Spotify on, and they wanted to listen to all this music and everything. And I said, how about some John Denver? And so we started listening to John Denver. And I was thinking about that picture. And it's a picture of me when my dad was deployed to Thailand for a year. And I'm sitting in this white chair that had um, red trim on it, and I had the headphones on, and I had this album sitting there, a photo album. It was a, My dad would send cards from Thailand to me. And I would sit in that chair and I would go, oh, I would listen to John Denver and I would look at that photo album. And when I did that, I was thinking about him returning for me, him coming home, right? And so you and I, when we come to the supper, it's like going through that photo album. This is a picture of his love for us. And what he says in the supper is, I'm coming back for you. And so we proclaim his death until he comes. It's the note of hope. Here's the second part. The promise is steadfast. Remember, the meal doesn't change. But in the meal, we proclaim Christ's propitiatory sacrifice. That is Christ's the way in which he turns the anger, the wrath of God away from us. We are proclaiming that. That in the supper, the supper is that, is a picture of Christ absorbing the wrath of God for us. And so we announce to ourselves and we announce to the world that the wrath of God was satisfied in Christ. Listen. If the wrath of God was satisfied in Christ for you, for me, guess what? It's satisfied. It's done. There's no double jeopardy. He is not going to come back for more. Christ satisfied the wrath of God. It's done. Once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that you would be made right with God. Nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Here's the third thing. The promise is powerful, right? The supper is for us a means of grace. It comes to us, and then because we have the Spirit of God living in us, the Spirit and the supper meld together, and they are, it is an agent of change in our lives. Don't ask me how to how that happens. I don't know. But that's what we believe. 
that the supper becomes a means of grace for us. And guess what? His grace is powerful. It's, a, it's powerful enough to change you and I from the inside out. And so, that is how the promise given in 2 Samuel 7 is operative right here in our presence this morning. It's still there. It's still functioning. It's still in motion, if you will. And you and I have all the parts present for us right here in the supper. Let's pray. Father, we want to stop and we want to pause. We want to give thanks to you for you told your servant David that you would establish your people. You would establish him as a people. And you've done it. And we're here this morning and we are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. And we want to praise you and we want to thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us. Father, as we approach the supper now this morning, we pray that you'll be before us in it, remaking us after the image of your Son for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.